Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. What does the future look like? By melting business acumen and innovative technology, Deloitte can help you build the future only you can imagine. They can help engineer solutions for your business reality today and your vision for tomorrow to get you to a world where you don't just dream it, you build it. See how you can engineer advantage with Deloitte at Deloitte.com slash US slash engineering advantage. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today I'm talking with Mina Shunk, the Administrator of the United States Digital Service. That's the tech unit of the executive branch. You might think of it as the White House's product and design consultancy for the rest of the government. The USDS was started by President Obama in 2014, after the disastrous initial rollout of the healthcare.gov website. Healthcare.gov now serves to let millions of people sign up for health insurance, but if you'll remember, it launched as a buggy, unusable mess. It was a real crisis. Mina was a member of the surge team that Obama brought in to salvage healthcare.gov and get through the crisis. That process took months. You'll hear Mina talk about how she worked from a card table with printouts of the user flow taped to the walls around her. After that, and an extensive career in and out of the private sector, she returned to be just the third ever leader of the USDS in 2021. The USDS has a fascinating structure. It's composed of nearly 250 people, almost all of whom serve two-year stints, developing apps, improving websites, and streamlining government services. The idea behind those two-year roles is to make leaving a big tech job for a term at the USDS a reasonable idea, the equivalent of design-thinking public service. The concept is working. Thousands of people apply for the roles, and the USDS is bigger than ever, with big successes like the Vaccines.gov website and a revamped Veterans Affairs website. But as you might expect, you can't just fix how the government's websites work. You have to fix the government's systems, and that involves some thorny political and bureaucratic problems. Mina can't just tell the VA it's going to have a new app and ship it. That's not how the government works. So a huge part of the job is making big agencies realize they have to make tech products so people can actually use their services. Mina says a popular catchphrase at USDS is that software is never done, which is meant to remind everyone that simply fixing an app or a website isn't the end of the road. Now, if you're a Decoder listener, you know this is a familiar issue at any software company, but the stakes for the government are much higher. These systems are how millions of people, including millions of older people, get their health care and other critical benefits. Now, I've long been fascinated by the idea that the interface to the government is just too hard, that the government's too hard to use. Most people don't know what services are even available to them, and they certainly don't know how to take advantage of those services quickly and easily. So I wanted to ask Mina about that, and if things like AI chatbots could make it easier to have a unified view of government for the average citizen. I won't give her answer away, but it was fascinating. And for me, it really highlighted the gap between the profit and growth motivations of Silicon Valley tech companies and the goals of the government. Mina's view of software entirely is actually really refreshing. And it made me think about how much more often we should consider software in a context 
that doesn't involve a giant corporation trying to sell you something. Okay, Mina Shung, the administrator of the United States Digital Service. Here we go. Mina Shung, you are the administrator of the United States Digital Service. Welcome to Decoder. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm really excited to talk to you. It feels like we are in a moment where the government thinking about technology is in vogue again. Maybe it hasn't been for quite some time, maybe ever. But the idea that the government should have some capabilities and build good products and in particular have the capability to understand what's going on with AI, it seems like the nature of the government's relationship to technology and the tech industry has changed. Do you feel that as well? I think it always ebbs and flows, and it somewhat depends on society as a whole and how we are thinking about it. I mean, I certainly feel that in the 10 years that I've been in and out of the digital service, right now is definitely a lot of energy around how do we tackle these challenges and how do we take take on these questions head on. So absolutely. Let's talk about the digital service. It started because of a catastrophe. You were there. The Obama administration tried to launch healthcare.gov. The site crashed. I think you were on the team that that had to fix it. You had like a six-week sprint to fix it. Now it's here, right? We're, we're 10 years into having a United States Digital Service. What is it? What is it meant to do? And 10 years into a working healthcare.gov site. Um, <laughs> which, important uh, to note. Yeah, it's still Which works. is incredibly important. And the teams that are at Centers for Medicare and Medicaid manage it exceptionally at this point. So the U.S. Digital Service is created as a place to bring in exceptional technologists and to work inside government to make the government work better through technology and design. How we do this is, you know, we recruit in incredible folks who have experience building the best, the most usable, the most equitable, the most efficient and scalable systems, technology products. We put those people together with people who have expertise in how to get things done in government. So we build these teams of people, interdisciplinary teams. And we deploy those to agencies who are the execution arm of the government to work on critical programs and to, you know, supercharge the teams that are already working on those programs to help them set up interdisciplinary teams um, to ship excellent products, to deploy them against major problems that have like a technology underpinning and a technology component, which, as you know, is basically everything these days, right? (laughs) Um, Yeah, that's a broad remit at this point. Right. And I I would add that like some of the ways that this has shifted over time is we go into the agencies, we help them supercharge their work on a specific program that is of critical importance. But now we're also, as you say, like government has realized that it wants to build this, this capability and that this is central to our role. And so we really work with the agencies to build out their internal capacity to do this as well, helping them understand what do product managers do? How do you hire engineers who are competitive from market? And sort of standing up the, the types of management structures that will make all of this effective inside those agencies. So we are like an execution arm, but also trying to be like a catalyst for change and, and evolution within government as well. I feel like uh, I've been doing this show for two years. And the only question we've been trying to answer is what do product managers do? What do product managers do? Product managers take a look at the core problem that you're trying to solve and the resources and trade-offs available and really try and facilitate everybody getting to a path forward on how we should try and best solve that problem given the constraints, the resources available, like what we consider a solution, right? Whether it's financial, whether it's number of users served, 
So I think their job is to sort of build a path forward using the people and the resources available and to help everyone sort of air their trade-offs and, and make sure that we're really solving the problem we set out to solve. I asked that question partially to be silly because I think you could get 500 different answers at 500 different companies, but partially because it's it's really important in this context, right? The thing you're describing is almost like a consultancy with some internal capabilities, Absolutely. but then you're going to build a team for someone else and walk away and that team will have its own culture. How do you think about that trade-off? Is it as a consultancy? Is it something different? I, there's a danger in mapping how like the private sector works to the government, but that feels like a pretty close parallel. I think that is a good model with the caveat that you know, consultancies operate under their own incentives. U.S. digital service does not get paid more if we create more different tasks at an agency <laughs> that requires our engagement. And so, you know, I, I would just say, I think like a consultant model is quite accurate, but there are some core differences. So we're not incentivized about how much business we can drive there. We are helping the agency we, we have extremely aligned incentives with the agency in a lot of ways in that our goal is to deliver services to the public. And we're in a position where, and consultants do this too, but it, it plays out in different ways. We're, we're partly hired by the agency, but we're partly hired by the American people. We're partly, um, you know, hired, we're a part of the White House. And so, you know, the White House provides its degree of coordination and strategic direction for agencies. And so, they're also one of our key stakeholders. So we're also in a position where we can tell the agency hard truths or help them redirect or sort of help them think about different approaches, different objectives in a way that I think can be hard if you're trying to sell business. Government's crazy, right? There's a lot of systems. What's the biggest hack that you've had to undo in your time in the government? I'll go back to healthcare.gov just um, because it, it just encapsulates so many <laughs> of these things so perfectly. Like there were... 30-something contractors. All of them were building different parts. There was somebody who was managing the infrastructure and somebody else who was managing the front end and someone else who's doing the user research. And like, there wasn't a central stand-up or operations control or anything in advance. And so, you know, I arrived several weeks after the site is already out and I got brought into this situation and I'm like, okay, so what, the site is down. So I can't go through the site myself. And so I'm like, what questions are we asking people? And everyone like looks around and nobody knows what information we're collecting from users to determine if they can have health insurance. So I called the call center and I <laughs> like, cause you can sign up on the call center and they asked me a bunch of questions and I wrote down the questions and I sent it around. I was like, this is the questions they asked. Uh, so this is the data we collect, you know? And so starting point, like be a user. I think I applied for health insurance. Like don't tell anyone because we weren't supposed to do that. But like, I applied for health insurance like 30 times. I just kept making up new email addresses. And, you know, over time we built, actually not over that much time, like we had to put in instrumentation. And so we got every screenshot, right? So we had like a bunch of users go through and take screenshots so we could like figure out where monitoring was and figure out user flows. And my desk was like this folding table in the hallway. And, you know, I'm in charge of metrics and a few other things and like product management and trying to sort of put together our key metrics. And on the wall, I have pinned like all of the user flows. Like I, you know, I have this great photo. It's like literally all these pieces of paper, printer paper with stickies on them where we want to put in mixed panel like monitoring. And people from every different contractor are coming over and being like, oh, where did you get that? That's really helpful. That helps me debug this. That helps me debug that. Um, <laughs> and so, and you're like, 
no, I like went to the website and I printed it out, you know? And so I think, you know, you asked about the product mindset, like just making sure that everyone feels like a user and like takes that mindset. I mean, that was just like, so eye opening and really helpful for the rest of time. Cause the frequency with which like, all I have to do is turn around my computer and be like, let's do this together. <laughs> um, is tremendous. So many amazing stories like that from that time. The idea that you're going to bring a, a product culture into an agency, right? I, I'm guessing 10 years ago, that was a much harder road than it is now. Has that changed, right? Where you're, I don't think you're explaining on, on a fundamental level what a product manager does anymore. I hope not. But the idea that you're going to bring that culture to the agency and that they're, they're going to adopt that culture, that changes the agency itself, right? It definitely changes the agency. So I, I would say we've made a lot of progress and things are really different. Like I don't show up in an agency anymore and have them say like, what is user research? And um, when is, well, sometimes what is human centered design, but like, what is user research is not a question. Like what is the cloud and it's completely unsecure and I couldn't use it. Like definitely conversations I had to have 10 years ago. You were joking when you said, what is a product manager? But like, it's a squishy concept, even yeah. in the companies where, like where I used to lead product, it was a squishy concept. I think explaining what specific roles should do and how they should fit together actually ends up being a lot of our work. And a lot of our work is not just explaining it, but showing, right? So we do the first project together and it's like, what does a product manager do? You say it the way I sort of said it. And that's kind of the same as a project manager. It's kind of the same as a policy expert. And so we actually just live the program and live a project and all do it together for six months, a year, 18 months. And that really helps them see, oh, these are the ways that it's really materially different from what, what came before. And that's what gives us, you know, if you go on USA Jobs right now and look through all the federal jobs, there, there are not enough product manager jobs. And if you look at all the people across the government who, like, how many product managers should we have? There are not as many as you would expect, given the number of programs and products there are. So there's still a lot to be done there. Our colleague, Jen Palka, likes to talk a lot about how product managers are kind of a key piece of this. And that, I think, is still, there's room to grow. The tension there that seems really apparent to me is that if you're the person in charge of the Social Security Administration, the way people experience it is through ssa.gov. And so it might be that the administrator of the Social Security Administration needs to be the product manager because they're ultimately accountable for the, the success of the thing that people only experience through a website or an app or something. Yeah. Is that just me inventing attention or is that a real attention? Like, do, do those people get that they understand that the user interface of their product is the product? Um, you know, we like to talk about like product CEOs in tech a lot, right? And yeah. I think a lot of exceptional products are built by CEOs who have a real product mindset, who live inside the product, who take customer calls. The way you get to, to very senior positions in government is quite frequently through a policy process, right? Through policy expertise, which has not a lot to do with execution in government for lots of reasons. Sort of policy is like deciding what we're going to do and implementation is doing it and never the two shall spend much time <laughs> together. So no, I don't think most agency heads think of themselves. Some of them do. And, you know, we've come a long way in helping instill that perspective, but that is not how, when they get in seat, they think about things. And I think that is one of the opportunities that we have as USCS. We go into an agency in a very senior position to work directly with the agency leadership on 
a specific program. So we have done a lot of work with the Social Security Administration. And some of it is bringing them along with like, what should you be asking your team to make good product choices? Like making sure that they get demos, making sure that they see videos from users of like, where do users get confused? Because not all of us are the target demographic for the services. Then taking a further step back and saying, you know, your product is not just your website. It's your website, as you said, in your call center and your in-person service. And how do we stitch those together? Because you know, for a variety of reasons over time, those are all managed by completely different business units, you know, with completely different technology systems. So there's a real need to sort of pull those together and have product mindset from the top down. I want to come back to just some big picture decoder questions for a minute. This is a lot of tasks. The government is vast. It's sprawling. There's a lot of things to do. I'm sure you have a lot of inbound. How big is the USDS? USDS is 230 people right now. Is that big enough? Definitely not. Um, (laughs) It's the biggest we've ever been. And I get unfulfillable requests every single week, um, as you would expect. There is such an incredible need for these capabilities across the government. And whether they should all sit in, as you said, like a semi, like a consultancy attached to the White House is a great question. But the total number of engineers across the civilian government is like, significantly smaller than at one big tech company. And the number of services and products that we are managing and developing is dramatically larger. So uh, no, there's there's a lot of need uh, and tremendous opportunity. We are hiring, agencies are hiring right now. There are thousands of open positions for incredible technical talent across the federal government. So you're 230, it's the biggest you've ever been. You're hiring, you're getting bigger. How is the USDS structured? We are structured a lot like a consultancy also. So we have communities of practice. So verticals that are, you know, all of our engineers, all of our product managers, all of our designers, all of our procurement experts. And then we have people deployed on like project teams. And so those have their own sort of internal structure, but are sort of necessarily temporary. But some of those are three months temporary and some of those are three years temporary. So, you know, you know that varies. And then we also have a significant operational side of the house. So everybody is on a two-year term. So everyone comes in or less. I know you spoke with President Obama about this. We bring people in and working in government can be an incredibly hard like mental shift. And so over time it has evolved and, and we have a lot more folks who have been here or have heard about it more directly. But we bring people in for a short period of time. Sometimes they decide to stay the entire two years. But that exercise, you know, hiring in government is challenging convincing people is challenging. And so we have like a big talent team that really works to both do recruiting and help us process all of that um, hiring and, and, you know, manage. I think we are on track to do almost 2000 interviews this year. Um, wow. Yeah. So it's just like a significant operation to, to sort of get to where we need to be. Is the management layer of those 230 people, is that on two year terms as well? Or is that more fixed? Everybody's on a two year term, um, except I guess technically me. Yeah. How do you maintain a culture if everyone's coming and going? Or is that even important to you? Oh, I think it's incredibly important. We spend a lot of time together. Uh, and, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I mean, I think it's it's challenging and it's even more challenging in sort of a hybrid world. But people are deeply united by what they came here to do, right? People come here because they are deeply motivated by the mission, want to have a massive impact. USDS, yes, we take people who have a 
lot of experience. And part of the reason that we're doing so many interviews, right, is we get, I think we're on track to get almost 6,000 applications this year. We will hire one to 2% of those people. So, you know, this type of being able to drop into an agency, help them from a technical perspective, but also have the exceptional EQ to really help bring the agency along and teach them how to do that. It's a rare skill and it requires experience. And so I think we have, you know, folks who have maturity and are deeply united by their love of hard problems, their love of the mission and and their commitment to impact. And so that is incredibly helpful um, in keeping everyone sort of working together against that North Star. There have been a lot of layoffs in tech this year, just a lot of turnover in general. There are more at Spotify this week as we're talking. Is that a new pool of applicants or talent for you to go mind? Are you seeing there's more interest in government work now? We have definitely had more applicants this year than in any prior year. I think that's a function of several factors, frankly, some of what you led with, which is that this is becoming more of a thing and sort of it's grown every year. But I'm sure that factors into it. There's a lot of incredible people who are free agents now. And so um, that's an unfortunate fact, but also an opportunity for the government as well. When you're sitting with your talent team, do you say, okay, like meta did it. There's a bunch of meta people on the street. Let's go talk to them. Is that Does that come up or is that just more ambient? So there is one agency in the federal government the Office of Personnel Management, and their job is to sort of help the entire government understand how to do hiring in the government way. They like make up the rules. And we have worked with them at the end of last year and the beginning of this year to stand up sort of a function that is called Tech2Gov that has pulled together lots of different agencies and has worked to build a common engagement model. We have job fairs where lots of agencies show up and we have speakers and people can go meet with, you know, people leaving tech companies can can come and, and meet with agencies, learn about what they do, understand how it would work. So I think kicking off that initiative, for example, was motivated in part by just the significant availability in the market and the need and coupling those together. It just really felt like there was a moment to kickstart those types of efforts. I wouldn't say on a day-to-day basis, like, like I said, we have, you know, 6,000 applications of people who are like, desperately want to come in and work. So we do have recruiters and, and we keep our eye on what's going on in the industry, but that is not our main focus. Yeah. There's, you know, other agencies often get criticized for having revolving doors, right? You, you go work for the thing that might regulate you or might compete with you in the case of the USDS. And then you go back to work for the companies. You've had your own investments come under pretty harsh scrutiny uh, because you had some waivers for conflicts of interest along the way. How do you manage those conflicts? Is that a concern of yours? We are very careful to ensure that folks who come in who have specific interests don't get into a position that would even have the appearance of impropriety, let alone actually have any influence. I do think there's like a real tension to grapple with. As you know, the tech industry and a lot of companies now pay with equity and sort of the model of compensation in the world has shifted and the government ethics regulations, I think, need to catch up and figure out how to think about that. Because you want people who have expertise in seat. And so figuring out what is truly competitive and what is not, I think is, I think there's an opportunity there. But we're extremely careful about it because as you say, I think there's, um, it would be, totally not worth it for anyone to even <laughs> perceive that that was an issue. Like this is just such important work uh, to be undertaking. So 
We have to take a quick break. When we're back, Mina and I get into a really informative example of how the USDS actually works in practice. Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. Here's the story of innovation told in five words. Try. Explore. Connect. Pivot. Transform. See what happened there? As soon as Connect entered the story, innovation became achievable. That's why Deloitte works with clients and tech alliances to bring together the people, ideas, and technologies to overcome, solve, and, of course, transform. Connect to what matters for innovation. Start at Deloitte.com slash US slash innovate. Support for this podcast comes from Hims. It can be challenging for men to speak about their health, and whether that's a fear of being vulnerable or just wanting to keep things private, there are just some things we would just rather keep to ourselves. Hims knows how you feel, which is why they're looking to provide you the help you need discreetly. Hims is a men's healthcare brand looking to provide simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for men. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health in private. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms and no pharmacy visits. So while it can be tough to deal with this part of your life, it doesn't mean you have to do it alone. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash decoder. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash decoder for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash decoder. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash decoder for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. We're back with USDS Administrator Mina Shung to talk about how she and the USDS approach big problems. You mentioned how big the government is, how many needs there are. This is the classic decoder question. You have to prioritize where your teams are going to go. How do you make decisions? What's your framework? There's like the how do you decide what projects framework and then there's their general framework. So there's so many problems to take on. There's so much work um, inbound. I am lucky in that it is not exclusively me. We have other stakeholders who engage in that. So I work very closely with the leadership of the Office of Management and Budget, which is the part of the White House in which we sit, and also with the Chief of Staff's Office at the White House to sort of triage and evaluate the impact of opportunities. Ultimately, we're extremely focused on where can we go that will have the greatest impact as determined by you know what will have the greatest impact for the most people in the most significant need. That is a combination of, is this the right type of project for USDS? Like, is this, you know, does it have a technology component? Is there a need for our skill set? It is those impact metrics. And there is also a component of long-term change, right? Our impact can be greater if the agency is sort of near a tipping point where they can move to a place where over the long term, they will start taking on more of these problems in a different way. And so we're also evaluating how, how ready the agency is to do things differently. Sometimes there's no chance, right? Sometimes even if the agency is not quite ready to think about things differently, you have to go do the work because it's so critical. (laughs) But we definitely like that is an important factor um, for us as well. Does Joe Biden ever send you a screenshot of some horrible agency website and just like fix it? Uh, Not him personally, but the the chief (laughs) of staff definitely. Uh, I mean, like Jeff Bezos, like famously just sends like question mark emails to his deputies, right? Does that come down like from... The chief of staff for the White House, like, 
this is broken and we need to fix it? Yeah, sometimes. Give me an example. It's less frequent that we would get a screenshot and more frequent <laughs> that we would get like a letter from a constituent or a letter from a user, right? So it's more like you get tickets and the way that people submit tickets to leadership in this context is you write a letter to the White House or the president. So we have engaged in significant work at the Department of Veteran Affairs over the last nine years. And it's some combination of letters and engagement from constituents letters that go to the Hill that then come to the White House and frankly, media, right? So I will also sometimes get a news story that says, <laughs> is this really this big of a problem and how do we fix it? So we have been engaged at the Department of Veteran Affairs for the last nine years. At the beginning of that time, the VA website like helped you understand who was the secretary of the VA and what is the structure of the VA and like, who cares? Um, <laughs> like not not any consumer who's like, where is my claim? How do I make an appointment with my doctor? Which facility are they actually in when I'm going to see my doctor? Like real transactional questions that any yeah. normal consumer would have. This was at the same time as there were a variety, the VA was sort of in crisis. They were having trouble scheduling veterans. Uh, there were a lot of challenges with data coming over from the DOD and people figuring out where their benefits claims were and their benefit appeals were. And so, you know, we got a lot of inbound on those topics and it helped us really identify areas to prioritize what sort of the biggest pain points were because it was clear that we needed to have sort of a wholesale transformation of how that agency thought about integrating all these services, but you got to start somewhere, right? Yeah. And so in, in part, those are really helpful for prioritizing both that we needed to focus on issues at the VA and then also which of those issues to take on first. And so we started that work. Initially, we launched like a compendium site, a beta site that was called vets.gov. So it was different from the VA website. It only handled a couple of the things that you needed to do, but it was the place that we could direct you to do your benefit appeals. And then over time, built out the functionalities of that, eventually moved that to be the main site. Now, if you go to va.gov, it's very transactional oriented. It's like, how can we serve you? What do you need to do? What are you trying to do? And then more recently have additionally supported the VA in building out their own mobile app, which... <laughs> as your demographic will understand, like building an app is the thing that like executives are always like, should we have an app? And you're like, well, <laughs> your like bar has to be incredibly high before you decide. But similarly, like we got a lot of user feedback. We looked at the functionality really hard. The CTO there is a former USCSer and he's incredible. And ultimately they decided it was worth the investment and critically important. And now it has over half a million monthly actives. It has over a million users. It's like 4.8 stars in the app store. You know, I think something like, 100,000 five-star reviews. So, you know, looking back at where VA was uh, <laughs> nine years ago, it is like impossible to imagine that that is where we are now. But that is what agency transformation looks like. And it shows, right? So in that time, trust metrics across the VA, which is not exclusively due to their digital experience, but by the way, in the process of integrating those on the front end, you also have to build out your business processes and figure out how to make those more seamless, has gone up by 20 points. And that's huge for a critical demographic. Yeah, this is a, an amazing example because there's layers upon layers here and we can just go through them. The first one is, boy, there's a bunch of old computer systems and databases that need to get integrated so that you can use a website to process a claim with a hospital and talk to the DOD. Like that just seems intractable. Like at any company, you're like, we have five different databases. One of them is run on COBOL. 
fix it, right? Is like already intractable. Our company is trying to migrate to WordPress. It's intract. It's like like just even that yeah. piece of it is hard. Then there's we need to build some front end user experiences to replace our like here's a picture of the secretary and a phone number for the for the main contact line into an application that you can transact with and that yeah. is reliable. And then there's yeah. we're going to care about ratings and reviews in the app store, which is all the way down the line, right? The first part of it, just that we're going to bring all the databases together. Did you just set a team on that and tell the VA, get out of our way, we're going to fix it? Or did they have a team? How did that work? Oh, I love this question. No, we, I mean, we don't do anything that is not in deep partnership with a bunch Mm -hmm. of different partners, right? So we are 230 people. At that time, I think we were like 60 or 80 people. But the VA has a huge IT department of their own and a huge operations and customer service department of their own. And most of the build work across government, almost all of the build work across government is done by contractors. There's also a procurement shop at the VA that is letting contracts to vendors to build all these capabilities, to update the databases, to do the user research and build the front end. And so we deploy small teams like like you would not believe how small on, <laughs> on some level the team can be, but like, you know, a dozen people to go and help the agency really like strategize what is our roadmap. So, you know, you said like unifying all the databases. I'm sure all of your listeners are like, here's what we should never do. Just like a database <laughs> unification project that has like, no, like those never go well. Right. So you have to figure out like what use cases are you going to focus on fixing first? So a lot of our initial work is like getting everyone around the table to look at the data on like what users are doing, where we're getting stuck, what are the bottlenecks and decide like what problems we want to take on first. Right. It takes, you eat the elephant one bite at a time. And all through that, we are working closely with the existing tech teams that are focused on like, so So some of this is like bringing in the executives, the existing tech teams that are focused on those parts of the experience, the procurement folks, the contractors, and helping everybody sort of shift what their objectives are, how they work together, how we make this more closed loop so that, you know, let's adjust our methodology to say that the outcomes and some types of user ratings should factor into how contractors are evaluated, which will change how they decide to do their user research and change how they decide to do their monitoring. Let's build a process where we start to look at the Google Analytics from utilization and that builds into like how we prioritize next things. Oh, first we have to put in Google Analytics so we can do that, right? So it's a very like centralized, like how do we help catalyze all of these partners to work together in concert. Our goal is not like we very rarely hands on keyboard build the app, um, (laughs) really any of it. We spend most of our time with like a combination. There are very real technical problems, but a lot of like non-technical problems too. And it's really, how do you catalyze all these partners to work together? So, you know, the work is done by the contractors and we're here to help the agency figure out how to most effectively draw the roadmap, um, prioritize the work, manage the technical roadmap, and also like the product roadmap. How do you build that into the contracts and and sort of all of that? So it's a very highly leveraged model um, in that way. There's a real tendency to take technology for granted, that to believe that you can just sort of deploy it or that it will continue running or that you don't need to update it once you have it. I can see that in the government, maybe most of all, 
particularly when I listen to our elected officials, that you can just like wave your hand at technology and make it go. Something like the VA, right? You get the VA wrong, people don't win re-election, right? There's a lot of political pressure around a process like that to make it better instantly. How do you manage the pressure that comes with people taking it for granted or demanding a quick fix against, okay, we have to do this invisible, very difficult database migration in order to get to the place that you want? I mean, that's one of the tremendous challenges. You're hitting on the head a couple like of the fundamental issues that we try and work with agencies, but stakeholders across the board to, to sort through, but some of them are some of the immovable objects. So one, you know, you, you asked, what do product managers do? Like the desire for new quick hits and to do something new in government rather than fixing what's old is huge. And as any product driven company would tell you, like, if you just keep launching new things, that's not the right way to satisfy your users in a lot of different ways, right? Figuring out how you're going to knit those together it gets confusing, you get proliferation. And as you said, like, it means you're not paying enough attention to your legacy products. You know, I think we're having the conversation now, which is incredibly important. Um, I helped write a paper a few years ago for the Defense Innovation Board, the title of which ended up being Software is Never Done, which is basically like, stop thinking that you build it and then you put it on an operations and maintenance contract and you never have to modify it. (laughs) That's a real good way to waste a lot of money over time. And so, The conversation is there. And I think the executives who are moving into leadership positions and agencies are beginning to have more experience in managing like ongoing investment in operations and IT. But the way government budgeting works, it is challenging. And this is one of the key things that we are constantly working on, that we're working with our colleagues at the Office of Management and Budget about, right? Like, How do we structure this budget to make sure that we can have the right degree of investment over time? So it's a real challenge. There's also just like the general politics of it, right? Obama administration created this agency. Trump cut the budget. Biden raised the budget. The congressional Republicans, if they accomplish anything, they will cut the budget. There's an election coming. Who knows what will happen? How do you manage through that? that? Do you assume that there'll be some fixed number you can work with and then you'll have an increase or decrease, or are you just waiting to see what happens? You mean for USDS or you mean for an agency that is trying to deliver services in a consistent fashion despite fluctuating budgets? I mean, it sounds like the same problem across the board, but for USDS. Um, I think USDS has, to a certain extent, more flexibility. We have a lot of demand, um, and I think we're highly leveraged when we go into an agency. We help them become more efficient and more effective. Um At the end of the day, I think USDS can scale up and down and just take on more and less programs, depending on the priorities, um, you know, across the board. Do you see your job Um, as political? Do you you go meet with various congressional leaders and whoever else and, and prove the point that this is valuable? Or are you insulated from that? We definitely do. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Ultimately, our budget comes from Congress. And just like any startup CEO, part of my job <laughs> is to go explain what our ROI is and, and show. Um, do you do the graphs that are up into the right forever? You're like, here's the hockey stick, Mike Lee. Uh, I, 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 no. <laughs> I was trying to think of a funny thing to say about that, but I don't even like. I guess the thing I could do that with is like the number of inbound requests we get, uh, yeah, yeah. Which, which does have some of that feature. So what's your what's your sell? So you go you go meet with some uh, Democratic or Republican senator. You're like, hey, like it's it's budget time. 
here's our number of inbound requests from across the government. Here's the new SSA.gov. Here's the new VA.gov. Here's the new FAFSA form. Like, here's the stuff we make. Like, look at how good it is and how much more of it people want. Is that is that the sell to the rest of the government? It's look at how good it is. It's frankly, like continuing to invest in your technology has a bunch of benefits, right? And doing it intelligently. So one, like we help agencies more effectively manage how they spend on technology. The honest, like as you know, in, in my private sector life, I had lots of contracts too. It takes like a high degree of expertise to effectively manage contracts to get what you want. And so we help agencies figure out how to most effectively spend their money and use their money. And a tech roadmap that is thoughtful is obviously much more cost-effective than one um, that has a little bit less expertise in it. So I think there's like a cost-effectiveness piece. There's also like a broader cost-effectiveness opportunity, which is, you know, part of technology is to make us all more productive. And one of the huge drivers of cost at a lot of agencies is like a very large number of calls to the call center, for example, or people processing things that are where we have a backlog, right? And I think those are political issues. You have a backlog of claims. That's a problem. And one of the ways that you accelerate that is by making all of those claims processors more effective and and helping them be more efficient about processing those claims. So I think there's multiple pieces where technology is helpful. And we are one of the most effective instruments of making technology more effective in government, both in a user-facing way and a back-end way. We need to take another break. When we return, Mina and I talk about what it means to design tech products outside of the frameworks of Silicon Valley. Support for Decoder comes from Shopify. Some people might say cat memes built the internet, but it's e-commerce that keeps the lights on. If you've dreamt of building a business, Shopify can be a great place to start. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. It doesn't matter if you're a well-established global brand or selling handcrafted goods out of your home workshop. Shopify has the tools to help you go further. Like their AI-powered tool, Shopify Magic, or their built-in marketing tools that can help you create, execute, and analyze campaigns. You can sell wherever, too, online or with their in-person point-of-sale system. Millions of entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries rely on Shopify for their e-commerce needs because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash decoder, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash decoder now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash decoder. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. We're back with USTS Administrator Mina Shung to talk about her design philosophy and where the approach of big tech differs from the USDS. A thing that I think about a lot is we've talked about product managers and user research and all this stuff. If you go to a young person, you're like, the fastest way to get what you want is open this app and the app is good and it will be effective and you can just like push some buttons. Most young people are very digitally native now. They're like, great. I don't want to talk to a person. I don't even want to make a phone call. 
I will just figure out the metaphors embedded in this user interface and I will get what I want done. And the, the kids know how to use Snapchat, right? That's like the, the, the greatest example of like, I will navigate this bizarre user experience to get what I want. And that, that thing is a success. I go to my parents or older folks and say, you need to figure out this computer to get what you want from the government. That is just crashing into a brick wall of antipathy because they've had bad experiences with that stuff or they think it won't work or they think it will be too hard. That is a huge discrepancy in your user base in a way that I think Facebook is like, whatever, we want the old people to go away. We're focused relentlessly on younger people forever. They have the luxury of being able to do that. And then you have a bunch of politicians that write your budget I think who in this country are almost exclusively old people. Like, how are how do you manage that? Like, if the if the interface for getting good government services becomes more and more like phones or apps, we're going to leave a lot of people behind. And then most importantly, the people who write the checks for it are also going to be angry at it. I think you are mixing together a few different factors. And so maybe to tease those apart. Sure. I spent a lot of time building tools for elderly people to use. And frankly, they are psyched. Like they are on <laughs> Facebook. They're. Uh, oh, are they? Uh, and I was going to say, like, <laughs> I, I, I was entertained when you said that because I said the kids actually aren't on Facebook anymore. And it's only the older demographics that are on Facebook. And a lot of them. Are right, but Facebook, Facebook right? like Meta thinks this is a, a, a critical, like an existential problem for Meta's business. Right. And in a way, well, they don't spend for you, money this is... and they're not advertising. So it's a problem right. for their business model. But what it proves is that that generation is totally willing to be digitally engaged. Right. And so if your parents say, I don't want to deal with the government in that way, I guess I would say, I think that's an expectations problem because they've mm -hmm. had bad experiences in the past. And it is the case that maybe someone who is like younger and more digitally native would be able to figure out a bad experience. But the truth is that we need to raise the bar on the actual experiences such that all these demographics can engage online. I have seen enough, you know, I, I ran a Medicare business. Like we were texting constantly with our members. Like they are excited to be engaged in technical ways that are frankly less expensive than walking into like a mm -hmm. social security office. Obviously some people really need to go to a social security office and we should have those options available for those people. But they also find it inconvenient often to go do that, right? Like you have to find transportation for people who are still working. You have to take time off work. I think there's a tremendous opportunity to meet those people where they are. And I think a significant proportion of them are willing to be met digitally. But we need to raise the bar on like what our digital experience is, how simple it is so that they can engage in that way. And to, what, to the last point that you were saying, we have to slowly, like, I don't think you can change people's culture and expectations overnight, but we have to have a slow success rate, a slow, like a rollout of a, a relentless set of like successful programs and successful applications so that people aren't deterred just by the idea of it. So I think the opportunity to engage with older populations digitally is still extremely salient. And we see that, right? Medicare has been rolling out new tools for shopping for Medicare plans, new tools for sort of looking at and comparing Part D plans, very high engagement rates. Uh, so I think it's just about making the tools simple and appropriate. Yeah. Let me ask that question a, a different way. I, I, I sure. appreciate the, the pushback there. And I, I don't disagree with it. But I think for a lot of folks, the online environments they find themselves in are 
actively hostile or actively trying to scam them or actively pushing them towards advertising or a transaction of some kind. You, you just see it all over the place. And then you have to say, well, I need you to trust that often the, the same sort of format on your phone in an app, the same kind of design language is going to lead you to good outcomes from the government where maybe you have a, already a distrust of what might happen there. That seems like a, like a real problem, right? If people open their email and it's full of spam and then you're like, click the, this other button and this will get you your health benefits, you're, you're operating in that paradigm whether you want to or not. And I think in general, and this is a huge generalization, I'm sure I'm going to get emails about it, but I'm just going to do it for the sake of the argument. In general, the audiences that have come up in the paradigm are used to navigating it, and the audiences that have not are struggling with it. And, and obviously, people are different on different parts of the scale. I think Gen Z is actually pretty bad at technology, just like they're bad at file systems. They haven't grown up with them. So th there's my out. Don't send me the emails. But that seems like a real problem, right? The paradigm of ultra-capitalistic user interfaces on the internet and then the government are in conflict. How do you manage that conflict? That is an, a very astute question. And it's a complicated question to answer. We have rolled out quite recently the Office of the Federal CIO. By the way, she used to be uh, the Claire Martirana, the current federal CIO, also used to be a USDSer, which is part of our plan to longer term change government is how people stay in key <laughs> roles. But um, so the federal CIO's office recently rolled out digital experience guidance. And part of the goal of that is to build in a degree of uniformity, consistency of navigation and language and like overall sort of branding that allows us to be extremely clear about like what is a government website, what are the things that you should trust, why, to be very clear and still accessible, right? Like, it also shouldn't be the case, to your point, that, like, it has to have complicated legalese for you to believe that it's the government. We should build other ways for you to say, like, this is a trusted service and it is still simple for you to use. And so to build brand guidelines and usage guidelines that make it more clear when you are on a trusted website of the United States government and when you are doing sort of key transactions. So there's, you know, a web design system that we are standardizing on for the whole government. There are branding materials and sort of a, a navigational framework and other things that we're working on to make it more clear that this is a government thing that you should trust. I also say like the other half of what you're saying is that there are challenges in product development because we have to hold ourselves to much higher standards, right? We like all of the shady sharing your data between yeah. apps and applications and websites. And like, we don't do that. And we hold our vendors to higher standards when they're delivering services for our products, our the federal government's products, which says that like any data that comes through this, you can't use it for other purposes either. Right. And that leads to a different experience sometimes than what people have come to expect. But it is the right thing. It is what people vote for and in their hearts know that they want. <laughs> uh, but, you know, we are actually <laughs> living that walk, walking the walk that they, that they want rather than sort of doing a whole bunch of other things. So I think there is a, more complexity. And this is where some of the really interesting and hard problems come in, right? How do you deliver an exceptional user experience, but do it in a way that meets like your moral standards and sort of the privacy 
and equity expectations that the public has. Um, so yeah, what, I think it's a great question. When you mentioned the monthly actives for the VA app, my mind immediately jumps to how tech companies would boost their monthly actives. Like, have you ever thought about just sending a super thirsty notification? Like, there's a new post. Is that a game you would play? To what end? <laughs> like, <laughs> to, to and, boost and the monthly kind of, actives numbers so that when but, you go to Congress, you can say, look at the monthly actives. That's what a tech company CEO would do, right? They would they would boost their uh, monthly actives so they can tell their investors in the next earning call that the, the monthly actives went up. To go back to, to what you were saying <laughs> earlier about lawmakers. But you know, it's, it's not... a radio show. I just want to point out, Mina definitely just like acknowledged that, that is true. <laughs> She's like nodded her head. <laughs> uh, as like a recovering venture capitalist, I have like a lot of commentary on that. Um, to take it back to a question you asked earlier and a point you made earlier, like lawmakers at the end of the day, their number one metric that they're like deciding on things on is not monthly actives, right? Like, yeah. It is a good piece of a pitch and it like helps us tell a story. But at the end of the day, they care about what they're hearing from their constituents. So I guess that's my actual answer is that like, I think in a good way, mostly, we're all sort of focused on like, okay, what is the actual experience rather than like, what proxy metrics have we cooked up so that we can have a quick like pitch deck and look at 42 companies a week. So I guess my answer would be like, we try to be much more holistic about it and, and look at sort of the overall picture of what's actually happening and whether our metrics are reflective of that is one of the big questions that we're, you know, what are the most appropriate metrics for us to be worried about? Let me shift gears a little bit. I'm really focused on the idea that the government should have an interface and that you can get a lot of value from the government if you could only figure out how to use it. And that's a lot of what your agency is trying to do, right? You're, you're trying to ma unlock it so people can like use the government. And right now that is expressed through websites and apps. And I think that that has a long roadmap to go. But you mentioned uh, President Obama was on the show. We we're talking about AI. There's a lot of government interest in AI, not just to regulate it and bring it under control and make sure it doesn't kill us all, but also because if you could just talk to the government and it could provide you services, that would be much better than having to navigate some library of apps. Is that on your mind? Is that on your roadmap that we should have some sort of LLM-powered interface to the government? Because it, that seems like the next turn for a lot of things. Maybe not LLM, so just some sort of AI system. Like, I'm just thinking about the LLM just lying to you about your social security benefits. Um, well, so I, I do love this question. Going back to your last question, right? Like, we do hold ourselves to a higher standard. Like, we're not just going to try random stuff and as you say, like give people incorrect information about their social security benefits. So is it on the roadmap to understand how to incorporate AI to more effectively deliver all these services? Absolutely. But like, do we need to get to a place where we have a degree of reliability, consistency, frankly, equity in all of these tools and our ability to sort of control what they do and understand and make sure that they are going to operate exactly correctly? Yes. And so you know, if you go to AI.gov, yes, there's a recruiting thing, but there's also an inventory of use cases, which lays out all of, well, the majority of the ways that agencies are currently exploring using AI, already using AI, and that's growing. And so, but a lot of it is pilot programs to sort of figure out how does this influence how we communicate with the public, um, et cetera. So I absolutely think that that is, as you say, like the future of lots of companies and the future of technology and government but we're going to have a really high bar for yeah. 
when and how that gets used. And frankly, that's one of the reasons that the recruiting question about this is so important, right? In order to do a great job of utilizing those tools, but also evaluating how we're doing on all of that, it requires us to have the people inside government who have that expertise, who know how to implement systems, who know how to tune them and test them and uh, build them out. So this brings to mind just a split. Like you have the ultimate Microsoft Office problem, right? You have a core set of users who need to do one thing. And then I'm certain you have people who expect the features to always be there across all these products, no matter what. And you can never unship a feature. Do you think about how to balance between I don't know, the power user of the the social security website and the person who's just showing up on the first day and is a little confused and needs help? I don't know that we have quite that problem. There's definitely like a long tail of programs, you know, that um, serve less, a smaller number of people. And we definitely have to continue, like these programs mm -hmm. are critically important to people. You know, that question made me laugh. Like, I don't know who's the power user of the social security website because there's there, a finite there's number one person of things that like, you need to do. I, I know there's a form on this website. I know how to go find it. If that moves, like it's all over. I'm mad, I'm mad at my elected official, right? Like that's a weird outcome. And so now you can't like reorganize the website, like changing a website taxonomy, as I well know, is like a very complicated idea, right? That, that's what I mean by power users. There are people who have expectations of how it will work and those, they rely on those expectations and they're not going to be motivated to figure out a new way. And then you have people who maybe you can bring on more people or younger people or different people or attract a broader audience to the services if you make it simpler. And that, that those things seem, that's what I mean by a Microsoft Office problem. Like I know the Office PM would love to get rid of most of those icons, but they can't. Yeah. I think we're always going to have an extremely long tail of mm -hmm. use cases. We don't have the problem in that, like, I don't think that we absolutely need to get rid of all of the long tail, right? Like, I think that there's some like product mindset where you just decide that you're going to fire a certain percentage of your customers because like maintenance for all of those features is too much of a pain. And like, we can't and don't want to do that. And yeah. so we will maintain those features and they may not be like as perfectly updated as they should be, but we don't have the same drive also to like manage expenses in the, <laughs> to like get rid of those programs, right? Like those programs are critical programs that have people that they serve and budgets that are allocated to them. So I, I guess we don't have the same motivation to prune. I do think simplifying and like making sure that we're not dropping critical functionality while we're rolling things together is very important, right? So ensuring like if we build something that is like, you know, a no wrong door strategy or a simplified front door for multiple programs, we do have to make sure that if there are people who would enter the program through a different channel. You know, there are people who go to get SBA disaster loans from federal emergencies and also from state emergencies. And so making sure that we keep available access points for people who, who come from, from different scenarios is definitely critically important. I asked that question in the context of AI because you could see how the AI interface just solves that problem, especially for the government, right? Where you're saying, actually, your main interface should be a chatbot or your main interface should be just I don't know, asking Siri. And the, we will begin the process of walking you through what other app services agencies you need to talk to. And it's almost like an ombudsman role to use that term. I don't know if that's exactly right, but it's almost just a guide to the, to the government that sits next to you. Mm -hmm. Is that, is, am I just making that up or is that, do you see that as an opportunity to sort of just simplify people's relationship to the government? Because the idea that the government has an interface, I think it's pretty radical. And the idea that the interface would actually be like openly helpful is even more radical than that. 
I think you're talking about, uh, so a different piece of the digital experience guidance, um, is around search and even just Mm -hmm. improving sort of information architecture on current tools and then improving sort of our ability to ensure that search results and not just like central Google search, but yeah, each agency has its own right. Google box. What you're talking about is sort of like the continued natural evolution of that to a certain extent. And absolutely like at the point that those tools are ready for that, I think it's a, an exciting vision. Uh, and I agree with you. <laughs> I'm just, I, cause that's where search is going, right? Like that's where Google, like literally the day before we are talking, Google had announced Gemini, which is going to be the future of Google search. I don't know if it's any good, but they say it's going to be the future of Google search. And you can see how that maps directly to you ask it a question and it tells you the answer. That is basically all people want from the government. Like I ask a question and it tells me what services I have access to. I'm just curious, is that a thing that has to come from the top down? Is that we need to, President Kennedy needs to announce in the State of the Union that we're going to have AI government in the next 15 years? Or is it okay, we've got a bunch of product manager type folks at a bunch of agencies and we can baby step them towards that outcome. I think the truth is a little bit more complicated of what people need and how they engage with government. So I think it's like a very cool and exciting vision. And I agree with you that that is where search and a lot of things are going. And I think that we can like continue making progress on that. But, you know, a lot of people need to transact with the government, which is a pretty different engagement model than just like finding out things. And a lot of people are already like most people are already in a cadence of transaction with the government. And what they really want is to continue to transact with the government, but to do as little paperwork as possible (laughs) for that to continue to be valid, right? Like, and so I think for just like finding out things, there's a real, I think what you're saying makes sense. But I think there's also, you know, there's a lot of things to be done even now. So, you know, another program that we've been working on is sort of automated renewals for Medicaid. So right now in the, like, we're just, we're really there's some other opportunities, right? So in the Medicaid program, states have to, so it's a state administered program, states have to, you have to determine every month if the person is still eligible for Medicaid. By law, as part of the ACA, states have to first look at like the data that they have available from like digital sources and other places to determine if they already have enough information to know if you're eligible. So like there are services where we can verify your income and it can tell some of our work has just been to like improve how that automated check works. So you don't have to be recent, like instead of a state sending you an envelope that requires you to resubmit a pay stub every month, like how can we just not bug you just the way your health insurance doesn't ask you every month if you're still like working at that company because there's an automated way for them to evaluate that, right? It's just like having the normal transactions and services that you rely on work in the background instead of bothering you (laughs) on paper for you to like go into an office or submit something. So I think, yes, that is a piece of it, but like there's so much more like operations that the government is engaged into and we can really do so much to like decrease the burden on that and take it off of the public and just sort of make things happen um, in the background. Yeah. I've really enjoyed this conversation because it, it is both the problems seem very challenging. And then it is also just such a different perspective on how to think about technology problems and user experiences than, I don't know, trying to sell ads to people. Uh, What kind of people are you looking for? You said you're recruiting. You said there's a big influx. What kind of people are you looking for as you think about, okay, we have all these problems to solve? Absolutely. So um, USDS is hiring. And 
in addition, lots of my colleagues across government are hiring. So I want to like put in a plug for the Presidential Innovation Fellows, the U.S. Digital Corps, but also every single agency that I work with is currently hiring for excellent technologists who want to work on important problems across all of those boards. But in particular at USCS, you know, we're looking for product managers, designers, engineers, data scientists who have experience in production, in real life environments and complicated environments. We're excited to take on hard problems that have a technical component, but also like a non-technical, like a people and an organizational component who have exceptional EQ so that they can work closely with all of our federal partners and who just like really want to work on the most important and hardest problems, you know, for massive impact. So I, I was just talking about that auto renewal thing on Medicaid. This is like healthcare so that people can go see doctors. And in the last three months, we have made it possible for over 3 million people to have auto-renewed Medicaid that they would have fallen off of otherwise, right? We have helped prevent over 500,000 people from accidentally getting removed due to like a different bug. So like the problem and the impact um, should be like deeply motivating. Um, And then, you know, we, it's just an incredible group of people to work with. Um, And so people who are excited about sort of increasing trust in government, who are excited to solve these problems um, in in a long-term way. Well, Mina, thank you so much for joining us today. This was really fun. I feel like I I learned quite a lot about computers and government. Thank you so much. Um, These have been excellent questions. Really appreciate it. I'd like to thank USDS Administrator Mina Shang for taking the time to join Decoder today. And I'd like to thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. We're planning to bring you more episodes of Decoder every week very soon. And I really want to hear what you want us to do more of. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com. I really do read every email, which some of you have found out recently. Or you can hit me up on threads. I'm at Reckless1280. We also have a TikTok. You can check it out. It's at DecoderPod. It's a lot of fun. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really love the show, hit us with that five-star review. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Kate Cox and Nick Statt. It was edited by Callie Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our executive producer is Honor Donovan. We'll see you next time.